you. And Father, we pray for your blessing. And Lord, we want to lift up our sister Giselle, Lord John, her husband. And Father, uh, we're grateful for the medical care that uh, our nation is able to provide. Lord, for capital health in particular, um, where Giselle is. And, but yet, Lord, she can't be with us. And it's a Sunday morning, and it's her habit to gather with the, the saints. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that you would encourage her, uh, Lord, that your spirit, the same spirit that would minister to her in this room, would minister to her now in her hospital room, and that you'd bless her. Lord, you'd draw her heart to yourself in a fresh way, Lord, that she would know that you're with her. You'd give her a peace. Lord, you'd give the doctors wisdom and direction. And Lord, we pray for John. Sometimes it's easier to go through the circumstance than to have to observe it. And so, Father, we pray for him, that you would give him a strength and a confidence in who you are and what you will accomplish through all of this. Lord, we know that the couple uh, has been going through a lot, Lord, with uh, John's daughter being so sick. And Lord, I do just pray that you would refresh them. We present them to you in Jesus' name. And we present ourselves to you that you might teach us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, sir. All right, so friends, today we are uh, in 1 Chronicles. Now, we, uh, we started chapter 11 of 1 Chronicles, but we were not able to get all the way through. I had originally planned to do the entire chapter last week, uh, and I had, I think it was 29 pages of notes. Normally, I do about 16, and Robin chuckled. She said, you never get through that. I said, I will, I will, but we didn't. So today we're going to be looking at the second half of uh, chapter 10. Now you may recall that in the first nine verses of chapter 10, David is installed or coronated, if you will, as the king of Israel, all Israel. That's important that you add the word all there because David, at, upon the death of uh, Saul, David was made king of Judah, one of the tribes, but now all of the tribes, seven years later after that death, all of the tribes come back to him and they say, we would like you to be our king. We looked at that last week. What we also looked at was one of the first acts of David was to move on the city of Jebus, uh, this city that would become Jerusalem, but to move on this city and claim it for God, so to speak. This was going to be David's capital. Again, we looked at how the French peas from VeggieTales, you may recall, we reminded ourselves of them, how they stood upon the wall and they said, you know, even uh, the lame and blind would be able to turn you guys away. You're not coming into this city. And that just made David a little bit more motivated, perhaps. And he said, somebody gets in there to that city, you can become the commander of all of my armies. And we read the story of how Joab uh, went down into the well. He found the water source, came into that well, and climbed himself up into the city, ran, opened the gates up, and then the armies came in, and they captured the city. Uh, and just very, very important, because this attitude that David brought to the circumstance is, we're not going to give even an inch to the enemy. This is God's promised land. All of this land is God's, and I'm not giving any of it up to anyone. Even though we have lived in, so to speak, compromise, the children of Israel lived in compromise, uh, co-lived with, cohabitated with the people in that city of Jebus, David wasn't having any of that. And the reason I bring that back up again today is because as we look at these mighty men, do you have uh, like headings at the top of your sections there? Maybe you have a heading like mine. Some Bibles do, some don't. But it says, David's mighty men. These aren't in the original Bible. They were put there later on, uh, the original writings. But it talks about David's mighty men. And the reason I bring this story up about David that we taught on last week is because David's mighty men, they pick up these characteristics as well. And so the way that David was is the way that these guys are going to become. The way that David refused to relinquish 
the city of Jebus. You're going to see examples of that in the mighty men today. And I think there's a point that I want to make here, that there is a tendency for us to become like the people that we gather around. Now, I know we got to go to work, and I know we got to go to this place and that place, and there are heathens in those places, and there are people that love God, and there are people that don't love God. And that can rub off on you. But the, the location, the place where you plot yourself down and the influences that you allow to come into your life, oftentimes they will rub off on you. If you're not proactive, if you're not careful and making sure that you take every thought captive, before you know it, you're likely going to become like those that you are around. Sometimes that's good. We gather with good fellowship. Sometimes that can be a negative in our lives. And so we need to be careful. Well, I want to pick up today and I want to look at David's mighty men because these mighty men do become like David. They follow his examples and his character becomes in many ways their character. So let's look at verse 10 and let's read the first four verses of this uh, part of the chapter. It says, Now these are the chiefs of David's mighty men who gave him strong support in his kingdom together with Israel to make him king according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. This is an account of David's mighty men. Joshabim, a Hachmanite, was chief of the three, he wielded his spear against 300, whom he killed at one time. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, or Dudu, uh, the Ahohite. I wouldn't call him that. You'll see what he does. Uh, he was with David at Pastamim when the Philistines were gathered there for battle. There was a plot of ground full of barley, and the men fled from the Philistines. But Eleazar took his stand in the midst of the plot, and he defended it. And he killed the Philistines, and the Lord saved the Israelites by a great victory. So we're looking at David's mighty men, David's military. These are sort of the, the generals, if you will. These are the elite military guard. Uh, and amongst these, there's a group that is known of, as, as we saw here, as the three. Now, in our First Chronicles passage, we're given the names of two of those three men. One name we're not given, we learn from 2 Samuel 23, is a man by the name of Shammah. So Shema is one of them, and the other two are Joshabim and Eleazar. Now we have the exploits of Joshabim and Eleazar. The first we'll look at is Joshabim. We read that he defeated over 300 men at one time using a spear. I can't imagine. I, I can't, you, you can't even picture a guy killing 300 men with an Uzi machine gun, let alone with a spear. But yet this fella is able to do so. Again, looking at verse 11, it says, Now this is the account of David's mighty men, Joshabim. He was chief of the three, and he wielded his spear against 300 whom he killed. 300 men with a spear. This is a guy you want to have on your mighty men staff team. You know, if he's going to be one of your military guys, you want a guy like Joshabim. Another thing we learn about him is from 1 Chronicles 27. It says that he was in charge of David's first division, and that in that division there, there were 24 thousand men so this man was a lead this man was a leader no email you know no cell phones or whatever but yet in all of that he had the ability to lead 20 lead 24 thousand men he was a great man he was a mighty man of god now the second of the three that is listed for us in this passage starts in verse 12 and that's the man eleazar the passage tells us he made a name for himself by taking his stand at pastamim which where there was a barley field so we'll read it it says next to him among the three was eleazar the son of i don't know dodo the ahanite he was with david at pastamim when the philistines were gathered there for battle there was a plot of ground full of barley and the men fled from the philistines but 
Eleazar took his stand in the midst of the plot, and he defended it, and he killed those Philistines. And the Lord saved the children of Israel by a great victory. Now, as I read that, I think a barley field? Really, a barley field? I could understand if it was a gold mine. I could understand if it was some important waterway. I can understand if it was a city like Jerusalem or you know, some important place like that. But a barley field was one of the most common types of fields as far as uh, growing grain or whatever in Israel. So you give up a field here and there. What's the big deal? Everybody else is fleeing. You should flee too. Why bother fighting for a barley field? There's hundreds of barley fields that are scattered around. Is it really that important to stand your ground to defend a barley field? Well, you tell me. Because his defense of this barley field is the exploit, and I'm sure it's not his only exploit, but it's the exploit that is given that makes him this mighty man of God. It's the exploit that is used to prove, see, he's a great man. He's a mighty man. If you ask me, I think it was well worth it. And the reason why I think it was uh, is not because it would open the door to some title or some job occupation. Hey, you defend this field and I'll make you uh, one of my mighty men. I don't think that was necessarily the reason, but I think it was an indicator of the type of man that this guy was. Three things I see by standing his ground and defending the barley field. Number one, he was imitating his master. Now, who's his master? His master is David. And similarly, David said, you know what? They can have Jebus. He could have said, they can have Jebus. I'll just find another city from which to rule. But David's mindset as he approached that, he was like, no. This box, this rectangle that we call Israel is the promised land that God has given us. I'm not giving anything up. And so David was unwilling to give up Jebus. And so here, taking that lesson, I think, Eleazar is saying, you know what? This box that is known as Israel is God's promised land. And I don't care if it's a barley field or a gold mine. It's God's. And I'm keeping it. And so I'm standing my ground here. And if I'm the only one standing my ground here, then I'll stand my ground. The second thing I think I see about Eleazar is that he was a man of faith. He was a man that essentially lived his life and looked at his circumstances, and he said, look, if God could protect David or Jonathan or anyone else, if God could protect those people, then God can protect me. If God is in this, then I, our endeavor can't fail. I'm not giving up the ground. I think he was also a man of principle. He was a man where some would say, it's just a barley field, no big deal. But he would say, no, no, there's the principle of the thing. This is God's land. You're going to have to leave. You're going to have to get out of this land. Now, I think most of us gathering on a Sunday morning and two weeks from now at 9.15, you know, we're committed Christians. Uh, most of us, I think, would say, I want to be a mighty man or a mighty woman of God, right? I mean, that's, I'd like to be a mediocre Christian just kind of a run-of-the-mill, no-good Christian kind of... Yeah. No, none of us want to be mediocre in anything. We would like to be mighty in our field of work. We'd like to be mighty men and women of faith, certainly. That's our objective. That's our goal. That's something we would like. We'd like to be like a, an Eleazar. Well, then I want to encourage you, and I've encouraged myself throughout the week, as you know, but then I would encourage you is, what are the barley... Ask yourself this question. What are the barley fields of your life? That doesn't mean much to me. I don't know what to do with that. All right, well, let me uh, redefine it. What are those areas of land that the enemy is seeking to seize and you are being tempted to turn, to run, and to give over to the enemy? What are those areas of land in your life, those small little 
compromises, those things that most people can look at and say, well, that's really no big deal. It's just a little TV show that you're watching. It's just a little bit of this. It's just a little bit of that. You'll be okay. No harm in, in kind of accepting that into your life and a little bit of compromise in your life in that particular area. Honestly, I would say most of us are okay with the big areas. We're not going out. We're not robbing banks. You know, we're not committing adultery. We're not murdering people. We, we got the 10 down. You know, most of us are okay in six or eight of those 10 you might look at. But it's those small little areas. And I believe it's those small areas that separate the mighty men and women of faith from the sort of average, bumbling along men and women of faith. And, and part of the reason why I can say this to you is because the first year of my walk with Christ was a bumbling around. Constant mistakes, constant failures, constant ups, constant downs, recommitments, all this sort of stuff, but not a steady growth in my walk with Christ. And, and if I had to go back and I have to kind of evaluate why was I in this area for a year of my life, it's because of small little compromises. Things that I didn't think were that important that others in the faith, ha that have been in the faith, were telling me, you know, this is an important area of your life. You really should commit this to prayer and see what God would have you to do. And I didn't really believe them. And I wouldn't put those things necessarily into practice. Or I might say something, well, you know, that doesn't really matter anyway. And so as we look at our lives, and I, I try to give examples, and they may or they may not apply to you, but let the Lord work in your heart. Let him direct you. But some examples perhaps is that TV show that you probably shouldn't be watching, but it's already on. And the remote's like three feet away. You know, and I, I ain't getting up to, you know, change the channel. I remember when my family, our first remote had a wire on it that extended from the TV and you could sit like four feet away, you know, but wow, I got amens on that, you know. I remember that too, brother. All right, very good. Those small areas of dishonesty, just being less than completely honest, fabricating the story a little bit, tweaking it a little bit, making yourself look a little better, protecting yourself so you don't fall those small little areas of dishonesty, they're not really that big a deal. That flirtful behavior with that coworker at work, you really probably shouldn't. You're married, he's married, she's married, whatever it may be, but you make those little comments, you make those little statements, you, you put your hand you know, on the small of the back, kind of those little things that you know you really shouldn't be doing, but you do anyway. Those little compromises, I would never go any further than that, you know, but those little compromises, those lusts that enter into your heart and into your mind and they pop in, like the flaming arrows that the Scripture talks about. And you know what? It's okay that it pops in, but what do you do with it? Do you entertain it? Do you go down the road with it? Do you uh, let it get into your mind and, and build and take root and all that sort of stuff? Or do you immediately put it out of your mind? These are valuable areas, small areas, that a lot of people would say, not really that important, no big deal. But I would suggest to you, that's what separates the great mighty men and women of God those that are unwilling to give up any barley field, even though there's hundreds and hundreds of barley fields that exist in the nation of Israel. So take inventory of your life. What are the barley fields that you're being tempted to abandon and flee? And determine as a matter of principle that you're staying. I'm not fleeing this field, and I'm unwilling to give it up. I would suggest God would do a work in your heart, and you'll begin to see growth in your life. Now, the next group that we look at in our passage in 1 Chronicles um, 11, it begins in verse 15. This is a group of people that are called the 30. So we looked at the three, Joshua, Beam, Eleazar, and I, I mentioned to you Shema, 
who's not listed for us in First Chronicles. But the next group of people is the 30, the second tier of military leaders, if you will. So look at verse 15. It begins, three of the 30 chief men. Look at verses 20 and 21. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, was chief of the 30. 21, he was the most renowned of the 30. Look down to verse 25. It speaks of a guy by the name of Benaiah. And it says that Benaiah was also renowned among the 30, but had not yet attained or did not attain to the three. So we're, we're introduced now to a new group of people, not the three, but this is a group of people that are significant, certainly, and they are called the 30. And three of those 30 men do one of the most <coughs> coolest, I think, exploits uh, in our passage here. Let's look at verse 15, and I'll read along to you. It says, Now three of the 30 chief men went down to the rock to David at the cave of Adullam, when the army of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me a water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, and they drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it, and they brought it to David. But David would not drink it. He poured it out unto the Lord, and he said, Far be it from me before my God that I should do this. Shall I drink the lifeblood of these men? For at the risk of their own lives they brought it, and therefore David would not drink it. These, three thing, these things, I should say, did the three mighty men. So these are three of the group of 30. Now the particular exploit that we are reading about, this is not when David is the king. Uh, this is from a much earlier point in their lives. You may recall that when David sort of had his falling out with Saul, David was a young boy when he uh, was sort of brought into uh, fame in, in the nation of Israel. It had to do with the slaying of the giant Goliath, and one thing led to another, and David finds himself as sort of a military man in Saul's army. Um, but uh, as the people were singing David's exploits, you know, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Saul didn't really like that. Saul didn't appreciate that. And David sort of became an enemy of the state and had to run for his life. And uh, we lo looked at that, that for 15, maybe 20 years, David was running from Saul. Uh, and during that time, men gathered around him. At one point, we read that 600 men decided, you know what, you may not be the king, but we want you to be our king of our lives. And you're an enemy of the state. You're America's most wanted. Your picture's in the post office. You know what, we're throwing our lot in with you. If we die, we die. And of those men, uh, some of them became the leaders, some of them came the next group, some became the next group, and so on. And as I said, one of that group is called the 30. And amongst that 30, you have these three. And so one day, as they're gathered about there, parts of uh, Israel are green and lush. You, you wouldn't believe it, but it's, it's wonderful, it's great. You know, it's like you're going on a, on a picnic out in uh, Hopewell or something. It's just a, a beautiful place with the hills and all that sort of stuff. But then other portions of Israel are much drier and, and more like a deserty type of a climate. Um, very dusty, hot, um, during the day especially. Uh, and I picture the scene as something like this. David and his men, they're sort of on the run. They live in their caves, no air conditioning to go home to, no hot showers and stuff like that. And they're just sort of running along on one of these hot, dry days. And as they come to this place where they're going to settle, it talks about the place of this rock, the cave of Abdullah. I picture that David just sort of crashes onto the ground like, and gives sort of this big sigh. 
and his mouth is dry and it be from all the dust and so on. And David sort of exclaims, what I wouldn't give for a drink from the wells of Bethlehem. Now David grew up in Bethlehem. David was a shepherd for his father's uh, sheep or cattle, whatever it may be. And as such, he had been in those, those dry places before. He had been in those places where he was dying. Like your kid comes in, I'm dying of thirst or whatever. He'd been in those places where he was dying of thirst and nothing quite satisfied. No like soda machines where you can run up to and put a quarter in uh, or a dollar, 50 now, I think. Um, <laughs> but no places like that. But you could go down to the well. Every city in Israel, you didn't really become a city until you had a source of water whether that be a river that ran through it, whether it be a cistern that was hewn out, or some form of a, a natural well. Uh, and Bethlehem had its well. And so there David, wishing to have it, that he had as a boy. And he sort of just exclaims, really to himself, I think that's important. This is not a command. This is not even a, really a statement. Did I say that out loud? You know, it's sort of what David is thinking there. He just says, oh, if I could just get a drink, man, I would hit the spot right now. And I sort of picture, as David is sort of sitting there exhausted, now maybe his eyes are shut and he's about getting ready to take a nap, I picture that the mighty men are sitting around him and that three of them sort of like look at one another. And with their eyes, they have a great conversation of, we should go and get him a drink of water from Bethlehem. And they're like, huh? And do one of these, and they all know what the other one is saying and thinking. My son Jake, when he was a little boy, like three or four, he would always say, are you thinking what I'm thinking? I'm like, I don't know. What are you thinking? You know, and then he would tell you. But he, he, he must have said it a hundred times as a little kid. And these guys there, are you thinking what I'm thinking? And they, get, they excuse themselves, so to speak, from the crowd, and they get up, and they go 10 miles away, because the caves of Adullam are about 10 miles away from Bethlehem. And this is a fortified city of the enemy. It was an Israeli city at one point, an Israelite city at one point, but now it's fortified by the enemy, the Philistines. And these men figure out a way to get into that city and to fill up a canteen or, or something with water. And then to get back out of that city safely and make their way back to David, who maybe by now is taking a nap. And as he awakens, you know, there on a little platter with a white, you know, uh, little tablecloth over it is a jar of water. I said, David, he said, what's this? And he said, this is for you. This is from Bethlehem. And he's like, you kidding? He said, no, we got this for you. We heard you ex sort of sigh and exclaim it. And we know you weren't asking us, but we wanted to bless you, so here. Now David, you would think, would guzzle it down and say, you guys are the greatest, right? You know who would do that? Saul would do that. And then he would say, and can you get me another drink tomorrow? Because Saul's heart was for himself. But David's heart was for his people and for his God. And so David sees this, and he, he sees it as much more than a glass of water, but this is an offering of their lives to him. These men could have easily died during this expedition. But this was an offering of our lives. We love you, and we are totally in with you, no matter what it takes, and we want to bless you. And so they give him this, and David takes it. Did I read this to you yet? I read the story, right? Okay, and David takes it, and it says that he pours it out. Now, you might look at that, and you might think, hey, man, you got a lot of nerve. What are you doing pouring it out? We worked hard to get that for you. And David says, exactly, I know you did. And I know you risked your lives for this. And that's why this glass of water is far too precious for me. The only one worthy of this drink offering, if you will, is our God. And so I will offer it unto him. 
And what do you think that had, what effect do you think that had on David's men? David's men knew that David wasn't for himself, but that David was for them, and David was for their nation, and it built their love for, them, for him. Important, as I said earlier, this wasn't a command of David. It was a desire of his heart. And as I've said in the past here, in so many ways, the person that David is is a picture of who Christ is to each one of us. And there are things that Christ commands of us, and they're also desires of the Lord. They're not commands of the Lord, they're desires of the Lord. And how do you know the desire of the Lord? Well, you need to be near him. And as David whispered a simple statement, what I wouldn't give for a drink from the wells of Bethlehem, that nobody heard outside of three or four feet away, these men heard because they had gathered near to David. And the Lord will reveal, will reveal his desire to your heart as you draw near to the Lord and the Lord's heart. We know the commands. We know those things are out there. But then there are those others. Hey, go tell that person that I love them. Go over there and care for that person. I read a story in the Calvary Chapel magazine recently of this family that was driving on a road and somewhat of an abandoned road. And as they were driving, they, they sort of went over this bridge and they saw a kid sort of sitting just on the curb uh, near this bridge. And it was sort of out in the middle of nowhere. And it was peculiar. It was strange. And one of the kids in the back seat of the car said, we should stop and go see if that kid's okay. And immediately mom and dad and, the, and everybody just sensed the same exact thing at the same exact time. And so they turned around and they drove you know, around the loop and they came back and they went and they said, hey, are you okay? And he said, well, I'm thinking of jumping off of this bridge. And I've counted and 72 cars have passed and nobody has stopped. And they said, well, the Lord told us to stop and he doesn't want you to jump off this bridge. You see, this was a family whose heart was close to the Lord. Now that's not a command to go and stop at every bridge and see people and make sure they're not going to jump. That's not a command, but that's the desire of God's heart. And these folks were tapped into God's heart, and thus they were able to be used by the Lord. And so how are you going to do that? Well, you need to be near the Lord. And so I would encourage you, um, foster that nearness of God. You shall seek me and you shall find me when you search for me with all of your heart, the Scripture says. Foster that nearness of God so that when he whispers even a desire of his heart, that you will be able to hear that. Well, our passage, as we are coming now to the conclusion of our passage, we learn of a couple of more folks. These are still part of the 30, so we had those three. We had the three. Then we had those three of the 30 that went into Bethlehem, and now we have a few more guys. Look at verse 20. Verse 20 introduces us to a fellow by the name of Abishai. And it says, Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, was chief of the 30. And he wielded his spear, spear against 300 men, and he killed them, and he won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the 30. He became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. Now, Abishai is the brother of Joab, as it says. That means he's the nephew of David, because Joab is the nephew of David as well. And he's among the 30 here. He's the commander. He's the most renowned. Just like Joshabim, he killed 300 uh, of the enemies of Israel, not with an Uzi, but with uh, his, uh, I don't know if it said, yep, his spear, he killed them. Um, so he's a significant fellow in the commander of the 30. We also read in verse 22 of a fellow by the name of Benaiah. Notice what the passage says about him, verse 22. Now Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel. He was a doer of great deeds. He struck down two heroes of Moab. 
He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when the snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a man of great stature, five cubits tall. The Egyptian had in his hand a spear like a weaver's beam, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff. He snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and he killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and he won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three. And David set him over his bodyguard. And so, like Abishai, Benaiah, he was renowned among the thirty. did not attain to the three, but he was certainly well known for his exploits. It says he was a doer of great deeds. And then it lists them. Now notice what it lists. Number one, it it says that he struck down the two military heroes of Moab. We found that in verse 22. He strikes down these enemies that are making their way into the land. Number two, it speaks of him going down into a pit uh, and wrestling with this lion there, more so than that, on a snowy day, you know, when it's slippery and your sandals, you know, get snow in them and all that sort of stuff. Well, this lion was apparently causing trouble, and so he takes care of that lion. And then it says in verse 23 that he slew an Egyptian giant. Now, the giant is listed as five cubits. A cubit is about a foot and a half. Uh, And so this guy is seven and a half feet tall. That's really big, really tall, but he kills him. And I love the account of the fight because there's this giant. And what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You mess with me? And he's standing there just taunting. And he's got this weaver's beam, you know, and it's, it's bigger than a normal stick. It's a big thing that men shouldn't be able to carry around. But this monster of a man is able to carry it around. And people are like, oh, no, big, scary man out there. And this fellow Benaiah is where? And I, I just sort of picture, you know, he kind of, ooh, careful. Hang in there with me. Okay. All right. So I, I, I picture him like a bulldog, you know, and he's got sort of like this, and he just goes in, come out there, and he goes and get him. You know, I was, uh, I play softball in some of the local leagues, and, and some of the leagues are, are not the church leagues, so to speak. We call them beer leagues, essentially, is what they are. You know, it's an opportunity to get out. I'm going to play softball, dear, and really it's an opportunity to get out and drink beer uh, for many of the guys that are out there. Uh, but there was one game where, I don't know how you can get offended by a pitch in softball, but it came a little too close with that 6 to 12-foot arc, you know, and that almost hit me, and that would have hurt or something. I don't know. And so the batter stands there, and he's got this bat, a weaver's beam, and he's got this bat, and he's like, you're going to let him kind of thing. And the, the pitcher is yelling back at him, and he's, what are you going to do? What are you going to do about it? Well, the third baseman is that he's a cop in Ewing, but don't tell anybody I told you that. Uh, he said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do about it. And he comes out there, and he takes him, and he bangs his head against the fence. It was horrible. He shouldn't have done that, um, but it reminds me a lot. <laughs> That's what I picture with Benaiah. Who's this fella here mouthing off to us? I'll go out there, and I'll show him a thing or two. And so like a bulldog, he goes out there, and he, he takes the guy's beam, whatever it is he's carrying around, and he takes care of Benaiah. Now, I imagine there's a lot more exploits of Benaiah than these three or four that we read here. Um, but the ones that they choose are significant. He kills a lion. We see here. We can only assume. Remember when David was a shepherd and the lions and the bears and the tigers, oh my, or whatever the phrase is, <laughs> that they would come and they would mess with his sheep? David would grab them by the hair on the side. What's that called? A mane, exactly. I wanted to see if you're with me. He would grab them by that and he would say, you better get out of here. And he would take care of him. Uh, David would kill Uh, The heroes of the enemy nations. Remember Goliath when he would come? David would slay the giant, using Goliath again as the example. And as I said when I began this, we become like, oftentimes, it's almost default, 
but certainly we can work against it. But we become like the people we pal around with. And the, the influences that we allow into our lives to kind of uh, just constantly be present, before you know it, we become like those so often, unless we're actively working against it. And so the question that I want to end today with is a question that I've been asking myself. Am I more like Jesus today than when I first believed? I gave my life to Christ when I was about 17 years of age. High school senior, began to learn about who Jesus was and decided, you know what, this is a guy I think I want to follow. Well, if we look at my life, or maybe even better, if somebody else were to look at my life then and to look at my life now, would they say, He's a whole lot more like Jesus than he was before he began hanging out with him. Is Jesus having an influence on my life? Am I becoming more like him? Are you becoming more like Jesus than when you first believed? Jesus was a man of humility. Are you considered or characterized as a person of humility? Does that describe your nature? Does it describe your character? Is it something that is growing in you? Jesus was a man of integrity. Is it something that we could say of your life or of my life? Jesus was a man who had a heart for the lost. Jesus had a heart for the outcast of society. We read that one story, which I love. It's when Jesus says, guys, get in the boat. We got to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And that's like a seven mile wide sea. And they're out there and they're rowing and they're rowing. And when they come to the edge of that sea, remember Jesus said, we have to go to the other side. When they come to the edge of that, the man with the demons that had been cast out by society, put in chains, thrown amongst the dead, living in, again, in the tombs, which were essentially just caves and living amongst uh, the caves are in the caves, comes running out, and he, he sort of screams at Jesus and all this, and Jesus heals the man. And then the people come and they say, get out of here, we don't want you here. You're freaky, you're scaring us. And Jesus says, it's time for us to go, guys, get back in the boat. Did Jesus not know that that encounter was going to occur? Certainly he did. Jesus went all the way across that river for one guy that everybody else said, we want nothing to do with you, and cast that person out. See, I love that about the heart of Jesus. Is that my heart? Is that your heart? Well, if we've been hanging around with Jesus long enough, we should begin to adopt the nature and the character of our Lord. And so Jesus was a man who cared for the lost. He cared for the outcast. Jesus modeled forgiveness. Do we? If you're not becoming more like Jesus, then whose image are you being conformed into? Because you are being conformed into something. The Apostle Paul wrote this. He said, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That word used for conformed there, some versions actually translated this, it could be translated to be pressed into the mold of. So we're just coming out of beach season here. I love the beach. I don't understand people that don't love the beach. I think it's the most wonderful place in the world. Um, but you always watch these little kids. I used to watch my kids. They don't do it anymore. But uh, you watch these little kids and they have all these little buckets and the buckets have shapes on them, and they don't really look like much until you fill it up with sand and you pack it with sand, wet sand, and then you kind of turn it over and you got a little castle. And you think that's fantastic. Well, the sand, as the kid was filling it up, and if you don't fill it up, it just sort of like flails, it disintegrates there, and it's not much of it. But if you fill it up and press it down and put more in and press it down and then turn it over, it, that sand has been pressed into the shape of that little bucket that you have there. That's the word that is using that is being used here when it says do not be conformed into the world. Do not be pressed into the mold of the world. And Paul's point is that is what is happening in our lives unless we are actively working to prevent that from occurring. Now Paul also offers an alternative for us. 
an alternative to the in inevitable conforming uh, to the world that will occur if we don't do anything about it. And he says, rather, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. To be conformed, again, is to be pressed into the shape of. But to be transformed uh, is the, where, the Greek word where we get the word metamorphosis. It's what happens when uh, a caterpillar goes into a cocoon and two weeks later comes out as a uh, butterfly. And you look at that and you're like, that's not the same creature. But it is the same creature. It's been transformed. It's undergone a metamorphosis. It's completely changed. It's completely different. A metamorphosis is not something that takes place on the outside, but it's something that takes place on the inside. And like the butterfly undergoes a metamorphosis, a transformation, that's what the Scripture calls us to do, is to allow God to change us from the inside out. It's allowing God to change our heart so that as we're near Jesus, and we're sitting there and we're hearing from Him, and we even hear the little sighs what I wouldn't give for a glass of water from the wells of Bethlehem. We're close enough to him to hear the desire of his heart that God begins to transform our hearts. We're not pressed into the image of this world. Questions for you to take with you. Are you being pressed into the shape of this world? Or are you being changed from the inside out because of the nearness of relationship you enjoy with Christ? Amen? Think about it. Father, we... Uh, Life is busy sometimes. And Father, it's just hard for us to kind of get away and, and to sit and to have quietness so that we can hear your heart. And Lord, uh, in many ways, I think it, it's just really a tool of the enemy, I, I think. But I know it's reality, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. And so Father, I pray for each one of us, Lord, this week. Father, as we uh, recommit in a fresh way this week unto you, Lord, as we seek to know you in a better way and, and who you are and what your desire is, Lord, I pray that you would put a burden within our hearts to meet with you, to just get away and to hear from you. Kind of turn off the radio, maybe, the, the, the TV, the news, all these sorts of things, Lord, uh, to wake up just a few minutes earlier, to settle ourselves so that we might draw near unto you. And as we do, that we might hear your voice. And Father, I pray that as you reveal your will into our lives, Lord, that you would shine your spotlight onto areas of our lives which, where we may be falling short. Small little areas of compromise, perhaps, that initially are no big deal, but over a long period of time have a great effect on the character of who we are. And Father, maybe for five, ten years we've sort of wasted time and we've lost all that time. But Lord, we can return to you today. And we can walk in a newness and a freshness today. And Spirit, I, I just ask that you would come and minister that truth to our hearts as we seek to present ourselves to you. Amen. I'd encourage you, even as we're singing, Take some time to pray. You don't have to change every bad habit of your life and sin of your life this evening or this afternoon, but you can come and you can bring one of those areas, right? And you can grow in that one area, right?
And so search your heart. Let the Lord speak to your heart. Let him direct you. What's he putting his finger on in your life? Give that over to him before you leave today. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my life, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought.